Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. I am your host, Kevin McDonald, executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. And today is Friday, July 9th, 2021. Thank you, as always, for listening. And we hope you have had a terrific holiday week. Uh, A short week for a lot of you with work. We know that. But we want to bring you some of our best from this week's show, which you can see every Friday night at 7 p.m., of course, on New Mexico PBS. Also, it rebroadcasts 7 a.m. on Sundays. But uh, we have a mixed bag of sorts this week, some leftovers, some additional things we wanted to get for you. But we want to start with a brand new segment uh, that looks at the situation. We've been following it for a while now, but the crisis situation on the border. There is a lot of talk about immigration reform again. We have had visits from the uh, President Biden and his administration Uh, And it continues to be an issue here in New Mexico. It continues to be an issue that is covered by a very talented journalist here in New Mexico. He is Roberto Rosales, a photojournalist at the Albuquerque Journal. And uh, Mr. Rosales covers everything from UNM sports all the way down to border issues. He's been doing it for a long time. And uh, we wanted to bring him into the studio with correspondent Laura Paskis, talk about how he approaches his work, talk about what it's been like covering the border uh, for uh, many, many years, and just get his insights on the role of photojournalism and how it can be impactful in covering complicated, difficult stories like the border. So let's jump right into it. Again, here's correspondent Laura Paskis and photojournalist from the Albuquerque Journal, Roberto Rosales. Welcome back to New Mexico Focus. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So you cover everything for the Albuquerque Journal, crime, sports, civic events. How long have you been covering the U.S.-Mexico border? Um, I've been covering the border uh, for about 20 years, two decades, starting in 2000. Mm. And what have you seen change the most over that time? I think, you know, in those days, in the first 10 years that I covered immigration, um, it was really hard to get somebody to actually witness them crossing. It was really hard to find something like that in the desert. Um, you had to find very strategic points along the border, especially around New Mexico. But today, um, with this asylum um, crisis, if, if you could call it, uh, it's... It's everywhere. You see them everywhere. Uh, Their attitudes, perspectives are changing. um, And obviously, everyone's just trying to come across. Whereas before, you also saw a lot of Mexican immigrants coming. And today, you hardly ever see any. They're mainly just from Central America, um, Cuba, Haiti, um, and northern South America. So big shift there. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of why those changes are happening and how, how that changes what's happening right along the border? So the Central Americans, for instance, you know, they're um, really starting to migrate mainly because 
uh, of all that uh, violence that's happening, the gang violence. Um, and I think that's the number one reason for them coming across. Um, here's a perfect example. Uh, family from uh, Honduras, uh, unaccompanied minor from Central America. Uh, this is what you're seeing. They're, they don't have an option to uh, stay and maybe hopefully things get better through diplomacy. They either have to leave or either join an organization, crime or organization. Uh, so it's kind of hard and that's what I'm seeing more along the border. That's the biggest change. Um, everyone that's coming here, they're coming because they're running away from something. Yes, they obviously want a job, um, but the difference now is survival. It's not that they're looking for the American dream or a better way of life. The number one reason is survival. And that, that is the biggest change from now um, since when I started working. Um, you know, everyone I spoke to in the first five or ten years of covering the border, it was always about, well, I have family in the States. I'm going to go work there. I'm just, you know, trying to look for my American dream. Um, and today there's no such thing. Now it's, I just want to be alive. Right. So Big difference. There's a lot of political rhetoric in the United States, in the state, about a security crisis. But what you're talking about sounds to me like a humanitarian crisis. It is a humanitarian crisis. Um, I mean, not only are Central Americans running away, but also one of the biggest factors that is influencing this crime wave in Central America is the cartels that are in Mexico they're starting to branch out throughout Central America. So now uh, you're fighting gangs and you're also fighting the cartels. And then, of course, if people do the research, the cartels are being, um, I wouldn't say funded, but they're being given arms that are almost strictly coming from the United States. And as they're trying to make human smuggling a business, they're branching out into El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. That is just a double whammy, if you will. Um, but recently I was in Juarez uh, at an uh, immigrant shelter and I noticed another factor that's happening and recently, and that's climate change. Um, people can no longer farm. I met a gentleman from Honduras who lost all his crops there was a natural disaster, a, a hurricane, but also in talking to people from Guatemala, they don't get the rains like they used to. They can't, they can't harvest coffee. Um, so when you combine that with gang warfare, you only have one choice. You gotta come up north. And again, that's just survival. So one of the things in your images always that I always wonder about is how people who are afraid for their lives, afraid of getting caught, how do you take these images? How do you meet people and, and, and photograph them? You know, it's, um, I have this connection with people, I guess, that, um, you know, I'm an immigrant myself, and I think I understand what they're going through. And I give them space. I give them the time to not feel, you know, um, threatened by me or my cameras. Um, I get, I take the time to talk to them. And a lot of the times, they want to be heard. If you take the time 
to listen for five minutes. It, to them, it's like a big relief, and I sense that. And, you know, you want to photograph folks in a very humanizing way also. Um, and so I, I strive to do that. But, yeah, for some reason I have had this connection with folks, and, you know, I understand what they're going through. You know, I'm an immigrant myself, so I think that also plays a big part. Um, I don't just point cameras and shoot whenever I want. It's a very meticulous process, very slow, but it it can be rewarding at times. And again, we're telling their story. So the border is such an important part of New Mexico, but for those of us, like we're sitting here in Albuquerque, it can sometimes feel like a distant place. Yes. What do you wish that all New Mexicans better understood about the border itself and what's happening right now, Alon? You know, um, I think I look at the border as, as the ocean, like high tide, low tide. When the, the border is like the high tide, coming in and going back at low tide, but it also it it it's a a wonderful place, and it doesn't have to be marred by violence and people trying to come across. These are two nations that are trying to coexist. Um, and it's not, we look at it as almost like a black and white issue too. Like, look, it, they think that just because you live on the other side, you want to come over here. And that's not the issue. If given a, a choice, most people would not come here. You know, you don't want to be separated. And I think separated from your family and, and people I think tend to forget that um, nobody's trying to take your job nobody's trying to take advantage of the system you know survival is one thing but everyone has the right to a better life and the border just doesn't it should not represent um, just death destruction separation of families um, it's, it's a lot more complicated than that um, but it's a it's a strange part of our culture I guess you know and people don't really understand that um, just because you live on the other side of this fence now like you shouldn't have to stay on that side and I don't have to stay on this side we can join hands join ideas and and coexist in a better way share all these experiences um, it's a it's a it's a complicated issue uh, but it's it's also a beautiful area. It is an amazing area where so many things happen. Um, and then, like in this photo, um, these are all men from Mexico who are trying to come across the border um, and who are leaving their families. And this is just in a, a border town across from New Mexico. Uh, this is um, in a town called Las Chepas, which is about... 15 miles west of Columbus, New Mexico. And this is the day where they're trying to come across. And every time I spoke to them, the whole time they wanted to talk about was their families, their kids. Everyone has photos of their kids. And, you know, the border is just this place also where stories are being told by them, by me, by so many others. So when political leaders say things like, don't come here, it sounds to me like 
like for me, like I wouldn't want to have to leave my home and right. my family. Well, I think it's easy to say that from being here in the U.S., but unless we address the issues, the root issues of why people are coming, save your breath, this is going to continue. And unless we help these countries combat um, gang, gang activity and narco activity, um, this is going to continue. This, is, this has no end in sight. And in fact, now that you're adding climate change, I think it's going to increase. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I fear for what's going to happen. But with the increase of numbers coming across, I think it uh, will still paint everybody with the same brush, you know, and, and I, I don't like that. So yeah. you, oh, go ahead. Oh, um, I just wanted to mention something about this image. This is what the U.S.-Mexico border looked like back in around 2005. This is where the Trump wall was built. Uh, it was near Johnson Farms in New Mexico. Um, but back in those days, this is what the border looked like. And these gentlemen are waiting for um, to get darker so they can come across. And none of them want to stick around this area. They have families in California, Florida, uh, all these other places. We were down um, at the border almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, and now the wall is um, 30 feet tall, oh, yeah. steel bollards. How has that changed how people... Well, it have? is more difficult um, to cross in this area. So what it's doing, especially in the boot heel of New Mexico, the most southwest corner of our state, is pushing everyone towards the Chiricahua Mountains along the Arizona-New Mexico border. And that terrain is treacherous. And there are also uh, areas along New Mexico, like the Peloncillo Mountains, that um, due to the geographical constraints, you couldn't build the wall over that. But it's forcing all these immigrants to take a more dangerous trek, if you will. But also, now you're grouping immigrants who want to come for a better life or you know, just to survive, and you're grouping them with drug smugglers because those are the preferred routes for um, the cartels, the Peloncillo Mountains and the Chiricahua Mountains, but also nature, um, habitats. They're being destroyed. Species are not being able to cross back and forth. So that's something that gets lost in this whole um, talk. And, and I think that's another thing that we need to um, address. So how is New Mexico's shared border with Mexico a little bit different from, say, um, policies or how things, how migrants are treated than in, say, Texas or Arizona or California? Are we different? I mean, I, I think we're different in the sense that we don't have all the options that people have, especially along Arizona and Texas. Uh, when you cross into New Mexico, you're often met by ranchers who are very anti-immigrant. Um, so there is another obstacle. Um, you have uh, boundaries by the mountains, ranchers who are against immigration, and you're more in an open area. You cannot, you can't hide. You don't have a, an urban environment to hide in like you would in maybe El Paso, let's say, or somewhere in Nogales out of Arizona. So you're kind of 
sitting duck when you come through New Mexico. Um, and I think a lot of coyotes, human smugglers, uh, promise that they are going to take immigrants across Texas or Arizona, and a lot of these immigrants couldn't tell the difference. And because it's easier for um, smugglers to drop them off in New Mexico, this is what they end up doing. And most people that are, are dropped off in New Mexico are caught, whereas you can blend in in other parts. So it's, it's, it's a lot more difficult. And, and so the numbers show it also. You know, Texas is way ahead. Arizona is way ahead. So 20 years of storytelling along the border, meeting countless people over that time. What do you wish that New Mexicans better understood about the challenges that these people and these families face every day? So, you know, I often look at the kids, the youth who come with their uh, parents, and a lot of times, um, the one thing that sticks out in my mind is like, especially with the kids, like that childhood is just being lost. You know, you have no roots that you can uh, put into the ground and a lot of their childhood is being lost. And I wish some people were more compassionate, you know, people who m could make a difference. And it, no mother, no parents should have to be separated from their kids. Um, but it is such a treacherous journey. I'll take a look at the Cubans, for instance. The folks that I've talked to in Ciudad Juarez across El Paso, for them, for some, it's taken them a year and a half just to get to the northern border. Um, and they get separated along the way. And so how do you reunite that? Um, it's, it's just an incredible journey that they take. And, you know, I don't know that if I had a kid that I would take that chance. But I see a lot of women who have failed to come across, but when they see that their kid may have a chance, they're willing to risk that. Even if for them means going back, but their kids can go on and maybe find a better life. Roberto, thank you so much for the work that you do and the stories that you tell and for being here with me today. Thank you, Laura. Uh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. And thank you for talking about this matter, which is so important and dear to me. Thanks. Thank you. It's always great to be able to talk to such talented folks about their work, their process, and just reflect back on images that photojournalists like Roberto Rosales have captured over the years. What was going on that you can't see in the picture, the story behind it, it's just a fascinating discovery and it was one we were able to do recently as well with Dean Hansen, the newly retired photo editor at the Albuquerque Journal. He uh, ended a long career in pictures, the last three decades of which was here in Albuquerque, so no shortage of stories from him. And in fact, we had nearly as much stuff that we weren't able to fit into the show with Dean as we were able to put in the show. And so we were thrilled to bring you that interview but uh, we were fortunate that he took a little extra time with us, and we want to bring that to you now this week as well. And, of course, when you're talking about photojournalism, 
the photos and the images are equally as important. So it's a good time to point out that you can always find uh, the show segments as well as the extras like the one we're about to share on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Just search for New Mexico in Focus or NM in Focus. You'll find us there and you can check these out, see the images that they are talking about. That is where we are primarily with our content each week. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram and get show segments and tidbits and uh, join the conversation throughout the week. So we encourage you to do that as well. But uh, right now, let's jump into the extra time as we go through some of his favorite photos from his career with photojournalist Dean Hansen. He sat down with our senior producer, Matt Grubbs. Dean Hansen, recently retired photo editor of the Albuquerque Journal. Thanks for spending some extra time with us. Um, as, as we thought we might, during the show we ran out of time to talk about some of these images. Um, what is it about shooting everyday scenes that, that you so enjoy? Well, there's a lot going on in the world. And there is a whole lot more good and decency than there is ugly in the world. Unfortunately, in the news business, we tend to bring you the ugly. I need to remind people that it's still pretty good out there. The things that we aren't dwelling on that are tragedy are, are normal people just going on about their normal lives. And uh, I find that fascinating. Sure, and uh, a privilege to have a paper, these are all, these aren't just photos from your personal collection, these are things that ran in the paper, you know? So there's clearly um, value to that. Well, and we're so lucky here in New Mexico and Albuquerque and having a newspaper like the Albuquerque Journal. It doesn't belong to a chain. It isn't owned by a corporation. All the decisions made for this newspaper are made in that building on Jefferson. That's why we're only accountable to the people. Um, we're not accountable to shareholders. This is why we get to do things with photography that's a little different than other newspapers. And I'm really thankful that we still have a place for this kind of photograph in our newspaper. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, obviously, we're all thinking about um, the COVID-19 vaccine, mm -hmm. but this is the, the simple flu mist that for kids <laughs> this age goes up the nose, unfortunately. Yes, and this was uh, an, an event. I don't know if it was put on by the governor's office or what, but I mean, here you just wait for your picture. When kids this age are gonna get something shot up their nose, I mean, how easy is it? Right. <laughs> That's terrific. I love that one. This is one that you pointed out to me. There are a lot of elements to this. Yes, uh, one of these women is a breast cancer survivor and the other is her friend who supported her. And I'm not gonna tell you which is which. <laughs> um, they're just so full of life and so beautiful. Uh, one of them had this mural, I don't know if you recognize it, in the backyard of a phoenix rising. And uh, you meet people and spend time with people like this, and it just makes you feel good. It fills your tank. It replaces everything that is drained away from the negative. Sure, absolutely. I can certainly see that. 
then we have another one here. So, so this is one, um, as we transition into our, our court phase, mm -hmm. um, there's humor to be found everywhere. <laughs> there really is. Uh, this is Dr. Patricia McFeely with this, what was it, the Office of the Medical Investigator. And I'd photographed her on the stand with her, you know, dummy skeleton numerous times pointing at things. But that's not funny. Homicide trials aren't funny. Absolutely, yeah. But when you see her sitting in the hallway waiting to testify, you're finding some humor in a difficult situation. Sure, yeah, it's that human side of, right. of people that we may, may not think of. Um, this one is interesting um, because this is, this is right at a verdict, right? Right. Okay. This is uh, down in Los Lunas when uh, the uh, killer of Rio Rancho police officer, Nigel Benner, was convicted. And these are his fellow Rio Rancho police officers. I was sitting on the bench in front of them looking at the defendant. And then when they read guilty on all counts, I swung around with a different camera with a wide angle lens, knowing there'd probably be a reaction behind me. Sure, sure. Boy, that is a tough, I mean, because you're right there, right? Yeah. That's, <laughs> man, that is uh, a ton of emotion. This one, I, boy. This is, I'm still not sure how this came together. It was a, a video arraignment, you can just see him on the TV of the person accused of a crime. And this is the aunt of the victim. And for some reason, she came over the rail and went after someone. These are really tough situations where on one side of the courtroom, you have the family and friends of the victim. And on the other side of the courtroom, you have the family and supporters of the defendant. And there's always stuff going back and forth. And security does a really good job. But occasionally, the emotions just get too much for people. Sure, absolutely. Um, this one we talked about during the show, but, but worth mentioning again just for, I think, um, regardless of how much attention you pay to the news, there's probably always that one kid that you can think of and that one crime. You yeah. know, and, and it just seems to play out again and again and again. It does, and it's, I don't know, I guess people don't learn lessons from others' misfortunes, but I mean, 30, 35 years, you hear these crimes, then you hear the hunt, then you hear the, the arrest, then months later, the trials that go on and on and on. Yeah, uh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to it. Absolutely. So here, um, you've taken your, your fair share of animal pictures, I'm, right. I'm certain. This one I love. It's Well, this was a day I was going to go to oh, the Lad Wildlife Preserve south of Berlin. And I thought, well, this is going to be a bust. It's overcast and gray. Because usually when you're going to go do birds and wildlife, you want beautiful sun and blue skies. Well, this way it worked in my favor. Uh, somehow the light dissipated, the fog, 
and it lit them from all sides and you could see detail which you normally wouldn't see. So I'm pleased with that. It was hard to tell that last one, catch up, catch up, but okay, you'll have to do. That's right, exactly. <laughs> uh, this one, I, I know a lot of us have seen pictures of Klein's Corners, but probably not like this. Yeah, uh, for some reason we had hoarfrost and I stopped at Klein's Corner and as I got out of my car, I saw all these, I guess they're crows, you wouldn't see ravens together like that, but for some reason they just belonged on that tree and they spaced themselves out in a good way. That's terrific. Uh, <laughs> the biopark assignment, I'm sure, is yes, one that when the Yes, when the Tasmanian devils first came in. I mean, they're lovely creatures, and he's not quite as in focus as I'd like, but the, <laughs> the teeth are sharp when they get angry their ears turn bright red and they hiss. And I mean, how can you not love a creature like that? That's fantastic. <laughs> so, so good. Oh, this one, this one is, is great. So this, this I thought was a picture of a painting. Yeah, no, this was just an experiment in a studio. I had never done this before and I wanted to try. I did it in total darkness, opened the shutter, and then I used a small pen light and painted around the flower. Anything lit was hit with light. What's dark didn't get as much light, but it was a really fun technique to do. Something a little different. It gives a kind of a three-dimensional quality to the paint, to the photograph. Absolutely. So does this, um, did this run in an arts guide or a special section? Yeah, we, it went with our, uh, I wanna say our spring home and garden section we okay. did. I think I did four different flowers this way. Oh, fun. But I like the tulip the best. Yeah, yeah, that's a terrific one. Um, our last little bit that we'll talk about here, obviously, is, is fire, which is going to be a big part of life, I would imagine, here in the next few weeks for us all. Um, this is Las Conchas? Right. And uh, the fire is burning down Los Alamos Canyon from uh, Via Caldera. And uh, it's, it's, they're just keeping an eye on it to see, is it gonna come through Los Alamos again? And okay. thankfully it didn't. But the interesting, you know, this is a perfectly adequate picture of the forest fire, but then I looked and his, I saw another picture in there, his knee pointed right to it. And uh, I just can't get over the beauty of a forest fire. I know they're supposed to be destructive, this to me looks like almost a good forest fire. Things aren't flaring, the ground is clearing. And uh, I think it'll come back even stronger in this case, but I just loved how the smoke and the haze came together in that picture. Sure, you were um, telling me that the ones that most often make the news, whether that's the TV news or the, um, or the paper, are the ones with flames. Right. Um, but after the flames are gone, there is, there is something there to, to be seen, for sure. There really is. And uh, it's just the ethereal beauty of, of the smoke and the haze and the layers you see in front of each other. Oh, and yeah. You have to acknowledge a forest fire can be beautiful. Sure. Uh, well, the last thing I wanted to get to um, was this idea of being photo editor, which you mm -hmm. were for your last years at the Journal, um, during the pandemic. Um, how did that 
changed the way you operated, your concern for your photographers, that sort of thing? That was a big change when it came basically out of nowhere. I mean, we are shooting the state high school basketball tournament, and the next thing you know, they're playing it without any people. Um, I think it transitioned. We saw a few masks, then it went completely away, and then the question became, how far is this going to go? What are we going to do different? My biggest concern was keeping the photographers safe. They had to be out in it, working in it every day. So we kind of developed our own little bubble within the department. I switched schedules so they would come in at different times and go out at different times. So there'd never be three of us in the office at the same time. Uh, they took vehicles home. Everywhere they went, we were constantly checking in. I would say to them, you know, here's what I'm going to have you do, or this is the visual possibility. Are you comfortable with this? I told everybody, if in any case you feel the least or at any amount in danger, just walk away. And we had uh, Roberto Rosales went out to the Navajo Reservation. Eddie Moore worked within the actual emergency rooms of hospitals. And uh, we produced some pretty amazing work for a staff our size. I'm very proud of the work they did. Now we're fully immunized and it's like this, we've gone through a gateway and everything has changed. So now we can see life come back to normal. And we'll, we'll see what comes next. It's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and it sounds like you're probably not done. You've, you have some ideas for things at the journal. And well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, in the past, the photo department kind of tracked the web. We were on kind of parallel universes, and with my leaving, they're integrating the photo department into the actual web mm. so that there will be better use of photographs. Um, and uh, we have such a talented staff. You need to remember that newspapers are the ones that are paying to produce the news about their communities. Facebook has made a fortune monetizing the work of newspapers, much to the de detriment of newspapers. So it's really critical that people subscribe to the Albuquerque Journal, abqjournal.com. <laughs> You'll see our photographs. Um, a lot of work that doesn't get in print now is on web in forms of galleries and slideshows. So if you've always liked the photography in the journal, there's a lot of it. And please look at our pictures. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dean, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for spending mm -hmm. all this time. We appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. This week is the second Tuesday of the month, and that means it is time for Our Land. That's our environmental series. The full name is Our Land, New Mexico's Environmental Past, Present, and Future. It also features correspondent Laura Paskus, 
We love doing these pieces for one reason, uh, that it gets us out of the studio and all across this great state of ours, and that is definitely true this month as well. Uh, Laura and Anthony Lostetter, our talented production manager, and for our land, the photo uh, journalist, video journalist, and editor of our land. They ventured up to the Carson National Forest in northern New Mexico. We are all keeping an eye on the wildfire danger this summer here in New Mexico. And this is a positive story about how community is coming together uh, to help with forest management, which we know is key to heading off wildfire danger in New Mexico. And this is an interesting story, not only about community, but about history and culture. Uh, We're talking about the Cerro Negro Forest Council, which again is a community effort to thin and manage the forest there in the Carson National Forest. And the folks who put this together, they really called back and looked back to examples from history on how to do that. Things like the governance that guides acequias or land grants. And so the Forest Service is working with the Forest Council on this. And through grants and other things, they're actually able to put some money in folks' pockets as well as take care of the forest and the lands, our greatest natural resource. It's a terrific story. We are so happy that these folks shared this story with us. And so here now, Laura Paskus and Arland. I'm Laura Paskus. And for this month's episode of Our Land, we visited the Carson National Forest to learn about a different type of forest management that's based on the acequia system. It's based on tradition and culture and meant to help the forest and the communities who live right next to it. A few years ago, J.R. Logan looked out across his backyard in San Cristobal in northern New Mexico. It was getting on toward fall when he and others who rely upon wood to heat their homes drive hours to other parts of the forest. Then they pay for U.S. Forest Service permits to collect wood. It just made no sense to me sitting in my valley that I would have to go so far to get firewood when looking literally out of my back door, there's a beautiful stand of ponderosas where the undergrowth has grown in thick and poses a huge risk to those trees and to my community and to the watershed. And I thought there just has to be a way where I can, you know, make it possible, where we can make it possible for me and my neighbors to be able to cut that wood, which is incredibly valuable to us as firewood and is in our own backyards and at the same time, make our community and our watershed safer. Logan met with elders and leaders in his community. Traditionally, um, we're a collectivist culture where the group is more important than the individual. They got to talking about how to create a forest council and structure it as a community development project. They talked about acequias, land grants, and the long history of participatory democracy in northern New Mexico. The governance, instead of creating a new system of governance, let's use the old ancient institutional forms of organization 
that we've had here for centuries, three, four hundred years. And that is the distribution of water has had a very appropriate and very successful uh, governance system. The land grants also have had a long history of governance, very democratic, very participatory. Parcientes, what is called parcientes when it comes to a ditch, uh, who, who a parcientes is a person that has a piece of land that needs irrigating, so they needed a mayordomo to oversee that. They worked with the Carson National Forest, wrote a grant proposal based bylaws on acequias and land grants, and they created the Cerro Negro Forest Council. Here, there are almost 300 acres of pinyon, juniper, and sage forest lands between the villages of San Cristobal and Valdez that need to be treated, thinned, so the forest is healthier, so it's closer to how it was before the U.S. government implemented fire suppression policies. Our project in particular is designed to remove fuels that otherwise would really ramp up and supercharge fire behavior were we to see a fire occur in this area. When the U.S. government stopped letting forests burn, they became overcrowded with smaller trees, all competing for water and sunlight and becoming additional fuel for wildfires, feeding them along with drought and rising temperatures to burn hotter and bigger than in the past. This isn't a restoration project like you might see in Ponderosa Pine where we're, we're truly restoring an ecosystem to a place that it was millennia ago. Rather, this is restoration for the benefit of people, but also the benefit for the environment in the sense that we're, we're preventing what would otherwise be an uncharacteristic fire, especially as we see you know, the climate getting warmer, hotter, and drier over the long run. The Forest Service and the Council divided the forest here into one-acre blocks and assigned them to lineros, or woodcutters. Trees to remain are marked, and the others can be cut. A mayordomo oversees the work, and lineros can use the wood at home or sell it, and the Council pays them $300 an acre for their work. That's less than what the Forest Service pays contractors. And although the work can be slower, it's a model for other places too. Already, councils have popped up in southern Taos County. My role in this is, is that I, um, I'm basically the leñero, the guy that uh, cuts it and bucks it, takes it home, chops it up, and I, I use it for, uh, for heating my home. Uh, it's, it's my uh, source of uh, energy for heating back at the house. But uh, yeah, I've been on this. I've already accomplished three one-acre blocks, and I'm currently working, just about finishing up my fourth. And I've got yet another one that I've been assigned that I've got to get started on and try to get that done before the end of the winter. Having to drive 15 minutes as opposed to two hours to get a good load of uh, the best wood that I can say there is to burn pignon, uh, I mean, this is awesome. I'm, I'm really glad this opened up because I was getting kind of worried about finding places to go get wood there. For I, Logan I, and Lenieros you know, like Cordova, their time in the forest wood. isn't just about cutting wood. It's about connecting with the past and spending time with family. Sometimes I just come out here and just sit around. I work really slow uh, and, you know, I'm always looking for deer, of course. Now that it's so open after they've cleaned this up, I mean, you can really, you, you see more and of abundance of deer than what we used to in the past. 
Historically, the relationship between the U.S. Forest Service and communities in northern New Mexico has been fraught, to say the least. The federal agency took over common lands when it was formed in the early 20th century, pushing people off their grazing lands and hunting grounds, requiring permits for woodcutting and pinion gathering. Closing access to the forests people had visited for generations. This council is a step toward healing, not just the land, but communities. I think the situation right now is really nice in, in this respect that we're working with the Forest Service. Forest Service is, is uh, cooperating with us, we're cooperating with them, uh, and things are getting done. In some cases, not in all cases, is where a family comes out, you know, a mom and dad, and they bring two or three kids with them, and they're all helping, and then of course they take their little break for their little lunch or whatever, which is, you know, amazing. It's like, nice. Being a leñero is hard work, but there's an art to it, too. Enjoy at being home in the forest. Well, let's say this. Uh, this, in a sense, is a rancho, right? Uh, rancho de leña de piñón. So why don't we say, Allá en el rancho grande, allá donde vivía, había una rancherita que alegre me decía, alegre me decía. Ah, there you go. From there on, it costs a dollar. <laughs> For Our Land and New Mexico in Focus, I'm Laura Pascas. That'll do it for this episode of New Mexico and Focus, the podcast. As always, we appreciate you listening in, and we encourage you to go back and listen to any episodes you might have missed. This week is a perfect example of something we try to do here on the podcast, which is to get you additional content that we just don't have time for in our broadcast show every week. So we are so thankful for your listening and your participation. We ask if you get a chance to please review, subscribe, resubscribe uh, to this podcast and spread the word. Uh, it really helps us out a great deal. Also want to make you aware of another of our podcast projects that is Growing Forward, where we look at the cannabis industry in New Mexico, especially right now as the industry is getting up and going now that it is officially legal here in New Mexico. It's a collaboration between ourselves and the New Mexico Political Report, and our co-hosts are Andy Lyman of the Political Report and Megan Kamrick, who does work for us here, as well as on air at KUNM Radio, working hard to gather interviews right now. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up for Growing Forward, and we encourage you to subscribe, listen to the first two seasons, and be on the lookout as we'll be kicking off season three in just a matter of weeks. But that'll do it for us here. Until next time, we thank you for listening, and we will join you again soon.